Welcome. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming out today. Um, this is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled The Iran Nuclear Deal, Assessing the Impact of Decertification. Um, first, if you're watching via C-SPAN 2 or our live stream and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please tweet us at hashtag uh, CatoFP or at hashtag CatoEvents. That's FP as in foreign policy. Um, further, we will be accepting questions from Facebook Live, so you may post there as well. Uh, this spring, the Cato Institute released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Copies were available on the table uh, as you came in, and there are well over a dozen chapters covering a libertarian or realist approach to various aspects of foreign policy and international relations. If you'd like more copies, please contact me after the program. And meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs, the entire 80-chapter volume, are available at cato.org. Um, also on your chairs is a new publication from our two speakers entitled Unforced Error, The Risks of Confrontation with Iran, which will augment and support much of the information we surveyed today. Uh, as many are aware, by Sunday, October 15th, the President will have an opportunity to certify or not the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal. And the White House has announced a press conference for Thursday where he is expected to publicly formalize and justify his position with all signs pointing to decertification. For Congress, this could mean a 60-day window to reinstate the sanctions that were suspended in exchange for that country's freeze on its nuclear program. Um, from some quarters, this is meant to be a critique that an exec the executive branch is simply foisting its responsibilities onto the legislative branch. Uh, but we see the possibilities more broadly than that and think the full range of implications have not been adequately examined. To explore these other likely alternatives to decertification, I brought two scholars from Cato who have been examining the available options very closely and have each co-opted the paper I mentioned that's on your chair as describing the dangerous path before us. First up will be Emma Ashford, who is a research fellow with expertise in international security and the politics of energy. Her research focuses on the politics and foreign policies of petrostates, particularly in Russia and various Middle Eastern countries. Her dissertation explored the ways in which oil production and export shapes conflict, including ongoing wars in Ukraine, Yemen, and Syria. Ashford's recent research examines the extent to which international sanctions imposed on Russia have been effective, as well as their impact on U.S. and European businesses. Her work has been published in Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Foreign Policy, and many others, and she has been a frequent guest on television and radio. Ashford holds a Ph.D. in Foreign Affairs from the University of Virginia and an M.A. from America, American University School of International Service. Then John Glazer, who is Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, his research interests include grand strategy, basing posture, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, the rise of China, the role of status and prestige motivations in international politics. Glazer has been a guest on a variety of television and radio programs and has had his work published in Foreign Affairs, The National Interest, CNN, Time, Newsweek, The Guardian, among many others. Uh, Glazer earned a Master of Arts in International Security at the Sharf School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. And we will leave time for Q&A at the end, but for now, let's please welcome Emma Ashford. Thank you. Um, no, please, uh, if you don't have a seat at the back, please feel free to come up and sit near the front. There's plenty of seats up here. Um, so thanks to everyone for coming and attending this talk today. Um, this paper, um, concerns an issue that, that John and I are both very concerned about, many of our colleagues are very concerned about, and that is the question of what the Trump administration is going to do about Iran. And in the short term, that it, that is the question of what they intend to do about the JCPOA, 
the Iranian nuclear deal or the joint comprehensive plan of action. And over the longer term, we think that that includes the question of the Trump administration's approach to Iran more broadly. So if, as we all expect, Donald Trump announces later this week that he does not want to remain in the nuclear deal, that he's going to decertify Iran, we wanted to look at what happens next. So this report effectively examines the alternatives. We came up with four alternatives, um, sanctions, pushing back against Iran in the region, so-called regime change from within, and then direct military action uh, as alternatives that the Trump administration could pursue to the JCPOA. Um, and as you'll hear both myself and then John talk about this afternoon, there are serious problems with all of these options. And we think that these options should be discussed now up front before Congress actually weighs in on the JCPOA, presumably in the next 60 to 75 days. So Donald Trump has been hostile towards the Iranian nuclear deal since, uh, he, since during the campaign. Um, he made a number of statements on the campaign trail about tearing up what he referred to as a bad deal, a disastrous deal, the worst deal ever made. Um, he never really issued any concrete criticisms of the deal, but he was always very clear that one of the earliest things he would do uh, when he got into the White House was withdraw the US from this deal. And in many ways, it was actually somewhat surprising when Trump, uh, upon entering into the White House, did not in fact withdraw from the deal. He, his administration has actually issued two certifications to Congress stating that Iran is in compliance with the nuclear deal. Um, and this actually fits with the facts of the case. Um, Iran is in compliance with the deal. The International Atomic Energy Agency has uh, certified a number of times that Iran is in compliance. The US intelligence community agrees that Iran is in compliance. Even inside the White House, um, a number of the president's own advisors are very much opposed to withdrawing from this deal because they believe, um, as, as John and I both do, that Iran is in compliance with the deal. The voices against certification, the voices calling for the president to withdraw from the nuclear deal, um, often state that they have very specific concerns about the deal. Small technicalities, areas where they're not 100% sure if it's working out. And if any of you have any questions on those, I'm happy to talk about them in the Q&A. Um, but rather than actually talk in depth about the deal and its pros and cons right now, I want to move to the next step and talk a little about why the deal is still the best alternative for dealing with Iran. And the debate that has happened inside the Trump administration and with a number of outside voices in many ways echoes the debate that we saw in the mid-2000s when the Bush administration was considering what to do about Iran. It is many of the same voices, people like John Bolton, who was George W. Bush's uh, UN uh, ambassador, who are arguing in favor of re removing the US from the nuclear deal, taking a harder line against Iran, and in many cases seeking to actually overthrow the Iranian regime. So this debate about the JCPOA is not happening in a vacuum. But the Trump administration doesn't seem to have a clear follow-on. We have seen the sentiment stated that they intend to decertify, to kick this back to Congress, but thus far the indications are that the president may not even advocate that Congress actually reimpose sanctions. The problem is that if we do start down this road, 
none of the options are very good. And I'm going to start with the first option that I mentioned, which is sanctions. And this is the one that most directly uh, impacts Congress because Congress is going to be asked to debate after the president decertifies whether to reimpose the nuclear sanctions. If we do impose, reimpose the nuclear sanctions, we will violate the JCPOA, effectively withdrawing the US from the deal. It is possible that uh, Iran and a group of European states and perhaps Russia and China will remain in some similar configuration, even if it's not technically legally the JCPOA, but America will be the one that has withdrawn from the deal. And this leads me to the biggest problem with sanctions, which is the fact that our European allies are not happy about this at all. They are not likely to go along with reimposed sanctions. They are not likely to be helpful when we ask them to police their own companies that are doing business in Iran. And all of this renders the sanctions on Iran far less effective. If we go back to before the nuclear deal was initiated, what we see is a very wide, multinational, multilateral set of sanctions, some of them through the UN Security Council, some of them from the US, some of them from the European Union, including uh, an embargo on Iranian oil imports into the European Union, all of which was very detrimental for the Iranian economy. If sanctions were to be reimposed, we would not have that level of support for them. And so it is likely they would be far less effective even than the sanctions that got us to today's deal. The other problem with sanctions, um, and I think something that we really don't talk about enough, is the fact that sanctions rarely work to produce policy change. The JCPOA is actually itself a very unusual case where we see sanctions actually succeeding in getting a country to come to the negotiating table. Far too often, as, as academic studies have shown, as many, many cases have shown, sanctions don't work. The Cuban embargo, the sanctions on Iran that we have had for the last 35 or 40 years, sanctions that we've placed on various countries in relation to human rights abuses, sanctions that we've placed on Saddam Hussein's regime in the 1990s. Most sanctions regimes fail to actually achieve policy change. If we rip up the deal, we have no guarantee that new sanctions will produce a better result. It's far more likely that they won't. Let me move on to the, the second option that we examine in the paper. Um, and this is the idea of regional pushback against Iran. So for those who haven't seen the reports, um, when President Trump uh, makes his speech uh, later in the week, he's going to talk more broadly about the US approach to Iran. And one of the things that he may bring up is this idea of pushing back against Iranian proxies in the Middle East, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's uh, Iranian-sponsored groups inside Iraq, whether it's the Houthis in Yemen. And the idea being that the US should work with friendly forces in the region or indeed use US troops to actually engage with these um, and fight them on the ground. Uh, sometimes it's described as rolling back Iranian gains in the Middle East. Um, so again, in the report, we lay out that this is a very costly and very risky strategy. Um, for the first part, there's no coherent opposition to Iran in the region. Um, as we've seen recently with the Gulf state crisis, where Saudi Arabia and another, a number of other states have split with Qatar, there isn't really a, a coherent set of states that are currently opposing Iran, so there's no easy way to back them 
in this. There aren't very many good groups on the ground either. Uh, if we look at the Syrian civil war, the lack of any groups that the US could trust or work with prevented us from being involved in that conflict for many years. Um, if you look at Iraq, some of the groups um, that we have been most closely working with, the Kurdish forces, are not particularly interested in this. So it was, would be very difficult to use local groups in this kind of regional military strategy, which means the burden would end up falling more heavily on US forces, which risks not just pulling the US into larger scale conflict in the Middle East than we already are involved in today, it also risks blowback to troops on bases in Iraq, in Syria and elsewhere in the region. If the US engages in this kind of strategy, it is likely that Iranian proxies will take asymmetric action against US troops in the region, putting them in danger. So the strategy of regional pushback um, is likely to be more costly than the current strategy towards Iran. And I think perhaps most importantly, and this really needs to be emphasized, a strategy of regional pushback does nothing to solve the nuclear problem. It does not in any way address Iran's nuclear program in the way that the JCPOA currently does. So both of these first two options are more risky, which is to say they stand less of a chance of working than the current deal. Um, and they're also far less likely to produce a result that we can be happy with. So with that, I will turn it over to John, um, who will go through the remaining two options. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Peter. Thank you all for coming. I want to start by just reiterating uh, some of the material that Emma opened with. I think, it's, I think it's really important for emphasis that I do so. And I want to be really clear about this. There's essentially a consensus that Iran is complying with this deal, okay? The International Atomic Energy Agency has confirmed eight separate times in detailed reports that Iran is complying with the deal. Uh, all of our European allies agree that Iran is complying with the deal. The Russians agree. The Chinese agree. Uh, much of Trump's own cabinet agrees that Iran is complying. James Mattis testified to Congress the other day that not only is Iran complying, but that it would be dangerous and harmful to US interests to back out or do anything to undermine it. General James Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, one of the highest military officials in the country, said Iran is complying and that we ought to stay in the deal. General John Hyten, uh, US head of strategic command, said a similar message at the Hudson Institute a few weeks ago. Uh, one of the main points here is that it'll damage our credibility and trustworthiness in the international community if we can't be shown to be upholding the agreements that we ourselves decide, designed and signed. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has also repeatedly conceded that Iran is in technical compliance with this deal. Um, he, under some pressure from President Trump, he's alleged that they're violating the spirit of the deal, although not the letter. To say the truth, I've read the text of this agreement. I've looked around for its spirit. I can find it nowhere. Um, what I do know is that by complying with the letter of the deal, Iran has given up 98% of its stockpile of enriched uranium. They've dismantled two-thirds two of their operating centrifuges. Right? They've converted a number of their uh, enrichment facilities to peaceful research centers. Um, they've given up, uh, they've limited themselves to first generation 
unsophisticated centrifuges of only a certain number for 10 years. They've limited their uranium stockpile of 300 kilograms, nowhere near enough for a bomb, uh, and at the lowest enrichment threshold of 3.75 for 15 years. Uh, there are other elements of the deal that uh, restrict them for 20 and 25 years, right? Um, and of course, throughout all this, they've submitted themselves to what Yukia Amano, the head of the IAEA, and a whole host of non-proliferation experts have said is the most intrusive inspections regime ever voluntarily agreed to by any party. Okay, so what you might have heard about sunset clauses, the fact that yes, indeed, some elements of this deal expire anywhere from 10 to 25 years from now. That's somewhat misleading because it's also true that Iran agreed to ratify the additional protocol of the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, which it provides for expanded inspections, and that concession is permanent, doesn't go away. So if Trump decides to decertify this week, he'll be doing so in defiance of the international community, in defiance of his own intelligence community, in defiance of his military advisors, in defiance of many members of his own cabinet, in defiance of some prominent members of his own party here in Congress, Senator Rand Paul, Senator Jeff Flake, uh, Representative Ed Royce, who's chairman of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, right? Crucially, if he does so, and it does undermine the deal, all it will do is incentivize Iran to drive its nuclear program back into the shadows, where it was before the JCPOA, uh, and will forfeit all of the transparency and all of the visibility that we have as a result of this deal. So this is not just, you know, it's one thing to look a gift horse in the mouth. It's another thing to ask the horse to turn around, face the other direction, and deliberately kick us in the sternum with both back hooves. Uh, this is the creation of a national security risk that does not currently exist. And if you have any doubt about that, look no further than what Bob Corker said to the New York Times on the record this week, which is that the daily task of Trump's national security team is to try to contain the negative impact he can have by flying off the handle and tweeting. Okay, the only hope, by the way, of mitigating the negative ramifications of decertification is if Congress decides not to reimpose nuclear-related sanctions in the 60-day window that they'll be provided with in the case of decertification. So let me uh, get to the other two policy options that we explore in the paper. Emma talked about sanctions, why those aren't likely to uh, be all that useful to us, pushing back against Iran in the region, essentially just a recipe for us to get bogged down in endless low-level conflict in the region. I'm going to talk about the policy supported by some of supporting Iranian opposition groups in the hopes that they could foment unrest in the country and possibly overthrow the regime. This is really a hopelessly infeasible project. Um, the history of U.S. regime change operations is not, is not very confidence-building. They usually fail, and in, this, in the rare circumstances in which we are successful in overthrowing the current regime and establishing a new one in its place, it doesn't improve relations between the intervener and the country that we've just uh, uh, overthrown, right? It usually worsens such relations. Um, a number of uh, uh, conservative and hawkish voices in Washington have argued for supporting um, the uh, MEK or Mujahideen Kalk, they've done quite a good job in recent years of lobbying to try to depict themselves as liberal Democrats. Problem with that is that they have no 
support base inside Iran at all. Okay. Also worth noting is that they were on the State Department's official designation of terrorist organizations until 2012. That's not a viable group for us to be supporting in the Middle East. Uh, one of the other groups that is frequently pointed to is the Green Movement. This is the uh, sort of moderate reformist group that was that rose up in the context of the 2009 contested presidential elections in Iran. Um, the reason we can't support them in hopes of regime change is because they have articulated no desire to overthrow the Iranian regime. In fact, they want to work inside the political system. And any support, any whiff of support from the United States would quickly evaporate their domestic support base. So they're not a viable candidate. We really don't have any viable candidates inside Iran to try to support and overthrow the regime. Um, So then there's direct military action, perhaps the most dramatic and drastic option. Uh, hopefully, the Trump administration is not actively pursuing this approach at the moment. But the first problem here is that a strike against Iran would be illegal, right, in both international and domestic law. I don't really, I'm not, I don't try not to predict things about Washington anymore, but I doubt that Congress is. Uh, prepared to provide Trump with legal authorization to attack Iran. Um, and of course, in the context of international law, you need either the justification for self-defense, which isn't present, or a UN Security Council resolution, which we won't get. So it'll be illegal. Second, let's not delude ourselves into thinking that direct military action could be a minor strike with limited consequences of the kind that Trump took uh, without congressional authorization, I might add, in Syria earlier this year. There'd be no pinprick strike in this case. Escalation is essentially inevitable. Under bombardment from the world's most powerful military, Iran would be very likely to engage in retaliatory strikes. Their ballistic missiles can reach all the bases that we have in the region. Um, and uh, they're very likely to engage in some asymmetric uh, conflict with us via their proxies, etc. cetera. Uh, the Pentagon won, uh, ran a, a war game uh, in 2012, as they do throughout the region, to explore various contingencies. And they found that even limited strikes would lead to a broader regional war that would cost American lives and enormous resources. Right? And nothing would persuade Iran of the need to obtain a nuclear deterrent more than a US military attack. Right? Not a viable option. Um, finally, think about the signal that we're sending to other countries, particularly North Korea, right? So we go and overthrow Saddam Hussein in Iraq, which, by the way, the IAEA was telling us at the time that, Iran, that Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction. So why don't we not ignore them again? That'd be a good thing. Uh, but also, uh, we go in there, no, no weapons of mass destruction. How about Libya? We engage in negotiations with the Gaddafi regime to get him to give up his nascent nuclear weapons program. And he does. And a few years later, we go in and throw, overthrow him with the help of rebels on the ground. right? And now, if we engage in this long, arduous process of negotiating concessions out of Iran to get them to roll back their nuclear program, and then we have a new administration, and he says, I'm going to rip up the deal, what country in the world, what rogue state, what potential nuclear proliferator in those circumstances is going to believe the United States? 
that we can be trusted to uphold the commitments we make to negotiate back uh, any nuclear weapons program that they might have or want. So look, um, as things stand, it looks as if Trump is going to decertify this week. And then, this is kind of cute, encourage Congress and his uh, members of the Republican Party not to reimpose nuclear-related sanctions, as is their option after he decertifies, which essentially amounts to being able to channel and broadcast that he opposes this deal, but not violate it internationally. But I'm a little worried at how likely that is. Iran has said that so long, even if the United States backs out, so long as uh, the Europeans, the Russians, and the Chinese stay in this deal, then they'll stay in this deal. But that is risky. It's politically not all that tenuous. If the United States decides to take a more hawkish and hostile approach uh, outside of the deal, uh, it's going to be very difficult for the moderates in Iran to continue to maintain that uh, and stay by the deal. So um, I suppose we'll just go to questions now. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, there's some thoughtful commentary on our Facebook feed. The first is about no-go zones. Are there, are there zones in Iran now that the deal just doesn't cover, and what should we do about it? That. Is there a way for them to develop nukes apart from the JCPOA? Okay, so I, I think what that question is referring to is this um, this idea of uh, inspections under Section T that has come up lately, particularly in some conservative publications. Um, and the way it's often phrased is that um, we only have access to you know, a few sites in Iran. There are loads of other sites the Iranians could be doing uh, you know, nuclear proliferation of those. We can't see them. Um, this is uh, both a vast oversimplification and not entirely true. So the, the, the section in question, section T, primarily covers um, nuclear-related or nuclear weapons-related uh, technology development that isn't related to uh, enrichment. So it's not about enriching uranium, it's not about plutonium, um, it's the part where you would be like designing a weapon. And so this is, is in uh, an appendix part of the deal, um, and it is in there primarily to say if we catch Iran working on any of these things, then that will be a violation of the deal. However, it doesn't have any inspections provisions. Um, and as one arms control expert um, put it, it doesn't have verification provisions because it would be effectively impossible to verify. Um, so this, for example, would include a requirement to look at every computer in the country that was capable of doing the mathematics that would allow you to research weapons on it. So this isn't feasible. It's primarily in the deal so that if we catch Iran doing something inappropriate, we can do something about it. We can raise it at the UN Security Council and we can do something about it. Um, in terms of where we can inspect, the deal covers a number of Iranian nuclear sites, at any of which the International Atomic Energy Agency can do inspections. The deal also includes provisions that allow us to present evidence of Iranian wrongdoing if our intelligence community figures out that Iran is working on something inappropriate at another site. We can present that evidence to the IAEA. They can demand access 
into it. Um, if Iran denies access, they have 24 days in which to deny or grant access. And if they deny it, that's where we start to kick everything back to the UN Security Council. That's where we enter that whole snapback of sanctions discussion. So the deal has built-in provisions for if we have concerns about sites that are outside the deal. However, the Trump administration has not uh, in any way presented any concerns that would rise to that level, which is why Iran has not been asked to open up other sites. We simply don't have evidence. We don't believe right now, the intelligence community doesn't believe, that Iran is actually doing anything outside of those sites. Yeah, just in terms of visibility in general, I mean, um, I think there's somewhere between 30 and 40 sites in Iran that the IAEA has access to. Uh, since the deal, they've conducted, I think, on the order of 450 inspections in the country. Um, and uh, again, we've, we've been able to clear it. So there's some concern among some conservatives that uh, in uh, military sites where they might be doing research and cheating on the deal, doing it outside IAEA eyes, um, that are on, we, you know, we don't have visibility on those sites, but you know, we have more visibility now than we had prior to the deal. Uh, and uh, it's be a bad route to want to inspect Iran's country more by backing out of a deal that allows us at least uh, the ability to, to conduct the most intrusive inspections regime uh, to date.